This is the Prevention Podcast with former intelligence officer and author Dan Verden, sponsored by LiveSafe, the leading risk intelligence communications platform that surfaces early warning insights and prevents serious safety and security incidents to mitigate operational risks, reduce financial losses, and make places safer for people to work, learn, and live. There's, there's no impediment whatsoever with requiring employees to self-test and to stay home and to advise that they're not permitted to come to the office if they have any type of fever. So to the extent that HIPAA applies, the employer is prohibited from disclosing individually identifiable health information directly to other employees without a HIPAA-compliant authorization. Welcome to the Prevention Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Dan Verton. Companies across the nation are scrambling to put systems and procedures in place for a phased return to the workplace. But the rapidly changing situation with the COVID-19 pandemic, combined with the overwhelming number of laws and regulations governing what companies must do, can do, and cannot do with regard to keeping employees safe, is causing a good deal of confusion and uncertainty for many safety, security, and risk managers. On today's prevention podcast, we're going to try to eliminate some of that confusion with three legal experts who are actively advising companies today on their COVID-19 return to work strategies. Joining me today is Brooke Ehrlich, a partner at Florida law firm Weiss, Sirota, Healthman, Cole, and Bierman, as well as Hugh Murray and Tiffany Hubbard, employment law attorneys with McCarter & English in Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome all to the Prevention Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. Glad to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me, Dan. Brooke Ehrlich, if we could, I'd like to start with you. Some companies are starting to put systems and procedures in place to conduct daily wellness checks on employees before they come into the office. They've been led to believe that they can and should do this, but there's still some uncertainty about exactly what they can ask, if they can take temperatures, and if they should store this information. Where does the legal community generally fall on these questions? Sure. So, Dan, first and foremost, employers are permitted to take employees' temperatures, and they're permitted to prohibit employees who have a fever of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or higher from entering the workplace. And that's, um, fortunately, we had guidance on that from the EEOC and the CDC Um, early on during the pandemic. The big question we've been getting lately is, can I test my employee for COVID before I allow them to enter the workplace? And fortunately, just recently on April 23rd, the the EEOC um, issued some guidance, updated its guidance, and explaining that employers can screen employees for COVID-19. And so the the legal question here is comes out because under the ADA, any mandatory medical test is required to be job-related and consistent with a business necessity. But here, when you apply these circumstances to the COVID-19 pandemic situation, um, the EEOC is saying, look, employers can undertake this type of testing because the virus poses a direct threat to the health of my employees. So yes, employers may administer the COVID-19 testing, but what I'm telling my clients, at least with regard to my area right now and much of the country, 
because rapid results COVID-19 testing is not so widely available for most locations, um, I really think that the best course of action right now is a fever test. And then if and when the COVID testing becomes more readily available, they can utilize it. And what about the idea of a self-attestation system that you're symptom-free? That seems like a pretty low bar to me. Pretty easy lift under the current guidelines? Oh, absolutely. We, I, there's there's no impediment whatsoever with requiring employees to self-test and to stay home and to advise that they're not permitted to come to the office if they have any type of fever. Now, that being said, the CDC has advised that particularly with the coronavirus, individuals can have the virus and not experience any symptoms for a certain period of time um, before they have any fever. So it's not always a foolproof method for preventing exposure in the workplace, which is why other steps should be taken as well. Hugh Murray in Hartford, Connecticut, what is the general guidance you are seeing with respect to what employers can ask and do in terms of screening employees before they enter the workplace? Well, uh, Dan, Brooke got it, you know, absolutely right. You know, the EEOC and nearly every state agency um, is giving employers a lot of latitude in terms of testing during the pandemic. Um, You know, the test under the ADA, job-related, consistent with business necessity. And in the current circumstances, um, we're relatively confident that if employers do reasonable testing, they're unlikely to get into too much um, difficulty on that side. But the question really, I think, comes to um, what makes sense in a particular workplace? Um, Because really what you're trying to do is obviously prevent further infection. Um, And so there's a lot of questions that I ask clients as they're figuring these things out, and I try to raise some issues. First, what is it we're testing for? Um, in the case of COVID-19, what you really want to know is, is this employee likely to infect other employees uh, with this novel coronavirus? Uh, I don't think we have a rapid, uh, reliable test that will answer that question perfectly. So you're left with a whole lot of other tests that have, you know, decent first approximations. Um, Every test that's out there for anything has false positives, false negatives, true positives, true negatives. Trying to figure all that out um, as an employer can be challenging. Um, And the danger comes, there's really two dangers, I think. One is that the testing itself increases risk. Um, And you certainly don't want that. The other is that test results give people and employers a false sense of confidence. Um, as Brooke pointed out, there's an awful lot of people who are uh, don't have fevers and have COVID-19. There's apparently quite a few people who are asymptomatic with COVID-19. So if you have a test and the person's got a you know temperature of 98.6, or I guess now normal is 98.1, um, that doesn't mean they're not shedding virus. So you really have to maintain all of your particular, um, you know, safety measures that you've got in place in terms of cleaning and social distancing and allowing people who can work from home to work from home um, and everything that you would do on the assumption that any one of your employees might be an asymptomatic carrier. 
Um, the other is, as I mentioned, the the possibility that uh, testing actually increases risk because um, in order to do a test, even a simple temperature test, you may have people congregating in one area, um, walking by a particular person who is doing the test and having some, you know, sort of contact with that person as the test is done. Presumably, you'd want to have, you know, proper protective gear and everything else. But that may, depending on the workplace, be the place where more people um, are in contact in one place. Now, some uh, workplaces, nursing homes in particular, um, are areas where the employees need to have close contact with vulnerable populations. Um, testing there makes sense, particularly the temperature testing. Um, but if it's a factory with, with touchless entry and people aren't dealing with each other very often and they're 10, 12 feet away dealing with their own machine, then you could be increasing your risk by doing you know, a standard temperature test, um, asking people to take their temperature before they come to work every day is a pretty good alternative. Okay, so I think what I heard from both Brooke and yourself, Hugh, is that whether or not a company is planning to, say, have their employees self-test each day, that they, have, they are not feeling well or not feeling any symptoms, or whether or not they choose to do testing on site or taking temperatures on site, or even whether they have their employees go through one of the COVID screening surveys before coming into work and getting that sign of approval that you seem to be okay and all of that right now seems to be legally within the right of companies to do that, and they shouldn't be running afoul of any particular laws and regulations. Is that accurate? Go ahead, Brooke. No, I was just going to say, I think what you were, um, Hugh, that, yeah, I mean, that's generally accurate. I, I loved Hugh's comment about they have to do what's right for their workplace. So, you know, obviously there's other legal implications here, and I think some of them will get into record keeping and documentation and HIPAA considerations. Um, but, you know, I don't want to say, oh, yeah, everything they do as long as they, they do this testing is fine because there's other things that are involved. But generally, with regard to the, the permissibility of that type of testing and those types of strategies, they all right now are considered legally permissible. And as lawyers, we're good at coming up with hypotheticals that might violate something. And there are uh, among the you know vast majority of good faith actors out there, there's always some bad faith actors. So employers who use this as an excuse to um, gather inappropriate information and make inappropriate decisions, there will be a few of those. Um, but an employer that is guided by trying to do the right thing and keep the employee, employees safe uh, will not run into those things. Before we delve into OSHA regulations, I want to try to clear up what I think is a general confusion about HIPAA. A lot of non-healthcare companies are anxious about running afoul of HIPAA. They ask questions like, when does what I ask or information I collect become a medical record, and who can I share this information with, either internally or externally? Now, my understanding, however, is that the healthcare communications between employers and employees are not governed by the HIPAA privacy rule, which would not apply if an employee, for example, tells an employer they have contracted COVID-19 or maybe they're self-isolating because they are displaying symptoms of COVID-19. Brooke Ehrlich, where am I going wrong here? Well, actually, you're not far off, Dan. Um, so 
it, just for background, HIPAA establishes the primary federal legal regime concerning health information privacy, as we know. But it doesn't apply in all situations, and it's often overused or um, assumed to apply in all situations with regard to medical records. At its core, the HIPAA privacy rule basically restricts the use and disclosure of individually identifiable health information. And health plans, covered healthcare providers, and other healthcare providers are considered covered entities and are required to comply with HIPAA, and this is what you mentioned. Now, business associates of these covered entities, which either create or receive HIPAA-protected information in the course of performing their functions, are also subject to many of HIPAA's requirements. So this is how we get HIPAA potentially extending to the employment setting. So while HIPAA doesn't apply to employers acting in their capacity as employers, so exactly what you said, if someone calls their supervisor and says, hey, I've been diagnosed with this, it's not, it's not applying in that situation. It does apply to employer-sponsored group healthcare plans. So this means that, say you have an employee in a legal department, for example, and they inform their supervisor uh, that they had a positive COVID-19 test. HIPAA doesn't generally apply to that communication. However, if the employer learns about the positive test from someone in HR who has responsibility related to the group health insurance plan and they discovered the information while performing those responsibilities, HIPAA will apply and should um, restrict the use and disclosure of the information regarding the positive COVID-19 test results that I'm talking about here. So to the extent that HIPAA applies, the employer is prohibited from disclosing individually identifiable health information directly to other employees without a HIPAA-compliant authorization. So this probably sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo, but from a practical perspective, even though there's this kind of nuanced distinction to the information, what, I've, what we've been recommending for our clients is if you receive information from an employee about a COVID-19 diagnosis, um, they should still take steps to maintain the confidentiality regarding the identity of that employee when they're managing the situation. So, um, you know, I still say keep the identity of the employee who provided that information anonymous to the extent you need to disclose a COVID-19 exposure potential in your workplace, it can still be done in a confidential manner. And there's steps which, you know, I can go through them now, we can talk about them, um, that have been outlined by the CDC um, that have been developed. And essentially step one is determine from the infected employee a list of individuals that they came into contact with in the 48 hours before they were symptomatic. And then if they were in the workplace when they were symptomatic, any additional employees. Now this doesn't mean someone that they passed in the hallway once for you know a total of two seconds. This means under the CDC, individuals who they were in contact with for typically 10 minutes or more and within a six foot radius. Once you identify those individuals, they should be notified that there was an individual in the workplace that they came into contact with or they've been identified as 
potentially coming into contact with an individual that has been diagnosed with COVID, and then those individuals should take steps in accordance with the CDC's guidance to self-isolate for 14 days. So that's really how, from a practical perspective, that HIPAA applies and should be used. Tiffany Hubbard, what is your perspective on the potential HIPAA liabilities here for non-healthcare or health plan providers? So as, as Brooke touched upon and explained, you know, HIPAA is a very specific federal law concerning the protection, you know, privacy and security of protected health information in the context of the healthcare setting. And while it may in some instances touch upon employers, for example, if they're a third party, if they administer their plan, um, generally speaking, HIPAA does not apply to employment records, even if the employer itself is a covered entity. So again, I think that that general confusion that you speak of regarding um, you know, when does HIPAA apply, that's because there's HIPAA is not well understood and it's kind of become the generic term for medical privacy. So when somebody suggests that this information needs to be shared, the response is, no, 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 you can't have that, it's HIPAA or oh no, now an employee is gonna give me this information, I'm gonna get in trouble as an employer because HIPAA applies and HIPAA is complex and hard to comply with. And I think what's important for employers to keep in mind that although in this context, you know, for employment records, there is not HIPAA liability, employers need to be aware of their privacy obligations when they're collecting employee, um, an employee's health-related information. So for example, you know, at, under HIPAA, as an individual, I can tell anybody about my protected health, health information. I'm allowed to do that. So that is a permitted disclosure even if HIPAA applied. But again, looking to other laws that apply to employers, um, one that comes to mind is the Americans with Disabilities Act. That that's a federal law that applies to employers with 15 or more employees. And it requires an employer to maintain information related to an employee's disability in a confidential medical record. So again, even though we're not looking at the implications of HIPAA liability, the employer has an obligation to maintain that information confidentially and not distribute it. And again, here in Connecticut, we have the Connecticut Personnel File Act, and that requires an employer to maintain the employee's medical information in a separate medical record, separate and apart from the employee's general personnel file. So again, an employer should be mindful of the federal and state privacy laws that apply to them um, when they're maintaining employee medical files. And again, another to touch upon another point that you mentioned, some of this information doesn't need to be recorded, right? And so then it doesn't need to be segregated and put into this special folder if it's just information that has been shared verbally. So let's expand on that just a little, Tiffany, maybe uh, for both you and Brooke. So the information that a lot of companies are looking to get right now is the is answers to the COVID survey questionnaire that CDC is putting out, their self-checker. And it basically asks seven or eight questions that um, cover things like, have you recently tested positive? Are you living with someone who's tested positive? Do you have any of the following symptoms? And then you put your information into this self-checker and it gives you some sort of answer. You seem to be healthy, no concern, or you shouldn't go into the workplace today and you should seek medical advice. Should companies be worried about storing the results of this type of interaction? 
I, I think they want to take, I think they, the first question is, do they need to, right? Or is it just recording that it was done and the employee was cleared? And then the second question is, is okay, if the employer is going to store that information to make sure that it is secure, right? Make sure that it's in a location that can't be accessed by people that don't have a need to know. But again, I think that in such a situation, it may be that the employer doesn't need to maintain that record, but just indicate that the employee completed it and was cleared. Brooke Ehrlich, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, really nothing beyond, um, you know, Tiffany's comments, which I think are spot on. I think to the extent that they retain them, they do need to be retained as confidential medical records. Um, most employers have some experience maintaining confidential medical records. And so if they do, if they are retaining them, then they need to be retained in that fashion. So I would follow whatever current policy or procedure they have in place for maintaining confidential medical records with regard to any documentation that they receive regarding the COVID testing, screening, or the questionnaire checker. Okay, so otherwise, if they did this on a daily basis, they can probably just get rid of the data for the day and they wouldn't have to take any other special precautions. You know, it really depends on the client um, or on the employer. I, I do deal with a number of public entities who have, uh, at least in the state of Florida, and I know a number of states throughout the U.S. have public records law, which apply, which prohibit them from destroying any type of records. So if they are, you know, it's one thing if employees are doing the self-checker at home and they're do, you know, running that check, and that's not something they're submitting to the employer. But if you have a public entity that's gathering this information, they're not permitted to simply, you know, get rid of it. They would need to retain it as part of their confidential medical record files. Let's shift gears a little bit and try to level set on current OSHA regulations regarding COVID-19. Now, we know that COVID-19 is a reportable illness under OSHA, but OSHA has issued some interesting guidance recently saying it will not force companies to investigate work-relatedness when it comes to COVID-19 infections. At the same time, it says if there is objective evidence that a COVID-19 infection was work-related, for example, if other employees reported somebody with symptoms, the employer is obligated to investigate and report that. Tiffany Hubbard, how are you explaining the COVID-19-related OSHA requirements today to companies? Dan, I think that the injury and illness record-keeping guidance that you referenced is a great example of the evolving nature of COVID-19 and how agent guidance is rapidly changing to try and keep up. So the current enforcement guidance, which you were referencing, um, were issued just last month. And if we think back to about mid-April, um, which now seems like a lifetime ago, you know, most of the country was under stay-at-home orders and healthcare workers, first responders, and workers in correctional institutions were identified as at high risk for exposure. And so that's kind of the context at which that, that guidance was issued. And so in exercising its enforcement discretion, OSHA said, okay, employers in these identified high risk industries need to assess every confirmed case of COVID-19 and determine whether or not it is work related. And then for everyone else, every, all the other employers who are subject to the record-keeping requirements under OSHA, where they have to maintain an OSHA 300 log, only need to undertake that work-related um, assessment if there was objective evidence that the case may be work-related. So 
fast forward uh, just a couple of days ago, OSHA has issued a new enforcement guidance that will take effect on May 26th, so next week. And under this new guidance, all employers are subject to the record-keeping requirements to assess whether the employee's case is work-related. So just to back up a step before delving into a little bit more detail, um, it's important to keep in mind that not all employers are required to maintain OSHA 300 logs. So many employers who have 10 or fewer employees or in an industry that OSHA has identified as a low-risk industry don't have an obligation to maintain those logs as a matter of course. If OSHA or the Bureau of Labor Statistics asks the employer in writing to maintain those logs, they would then have that obligation. But otherwise, those, those employers are exempt from this requirement. So that's kind of important to keep in mind in this context. And then looking at it, OSHA has said, okay, to determine whether or not a case of COVID-19 is work-related, we have to first determine whether it was a confirmed case of COVID-19, and that's as defined by the CDC, and then go into the work-related determination. And then if it is work-related, determine whether or not it involves one or more of the general recording criteria, which would be death, inpatient hospitalization, um, days off from work, um, among others. So in this new guidance, OSHA is recognizing that making that work-related determination is challenging given the nature of COVID-19 and the level of community spread. But because now all 50 states are reopening and employees are going back to work, OSHA is going to require all employers to make that assessment. So it's not just if there's this objective evidence. Tiffany, what about the catch-all duty of care clause? Do you suspect you might start to see some cases where employees notice that their employers are not taking this situation seriously enough and alleging that they've failed to meet their duty of care obligations? Absolutely. And so again, I think that if you take a look at OSHA's enforcement page, they have seen an uptick in OSHA complaints, um, complaining that the workplace is not safe and that they're concerned their employer is not doing enough to protect them. So I think that, you know, aside from looking at the uh, just the, the general duty clause, an employer also has to understand and be aware of its other obligations under existing OSHA standards that may apply. And in addition to the injury and illness record-keeping standard we talked about, the, the PPE standard, the HAZCOM standard, and the sanitation standards also may apply. And so, you know, an employer wants to make sure that its program is OSHA compliant, that it has looked at and identified the hazards, that it has set up policies and procedures in place, and it has explained those to employees so that they understand the steps the employer is taking to help keep the workplace safe. So again, you know, especially in this environment where everybody is concerned, there's an increase in anxiety and there's, you know, employees could be afraid. I think it's helpful to have that dialogue and employers should be open to hearing and addressing employee complaints and responding to them. And that doesn't mean that an employer needs to do what an employee has requested for them to do, 
but to explain to them why the employer has implemented the policies that it has and the measures that it's taking to ensure workplace safety. I want to turn now to privacy and security as it relates to COVID-19 health screening of employees either at the workplace or before they arrive at the workplace. The basic question is, how should companies handle alerting the workforce that a coworker has either been diagnosed or is self-isolating due to symptoms? I mean, do they have to keep the employee anonymous? Uh, are there legal obligations or risks of companies storing the results of COVID-19 symptom surveys or conducting their own contact tracing? Brooke Ehrlich, let's start with you. Sure. So I think with regard to kind of the first issue, which is what steps should companies be taking with regard to contact tracing once they find out that they have an employee who has a positive COVID diagnosis, what should they do? And I do think that employers should have, a, have an obligation to notify other company or I'm sorry, other employees in the workforce regarding that diagnosis. But I think um, the earlier question or the earlier comment that we had um, from Hugh with regard to, you know, it, it kind of has to be de- it's dependent upon the employer and what is reasonable for their circumstances. If you have a very large organization with multiple um, satellite operations and multiple satellite offices, and you have an employee in one of those offices that is diagnosed, you know, there may not be a need for you to notify the entirety of the, of the um, organization. Now, if you have a place where you have an employee who, um, you know, one location and, you know, could potentially have been, you know, standing or going into a common room area or a lunchroom and could have been exposed to a number of different people, even if under the CDC guidance, it was not for a period of 10 minutes or longer within six feet um, or less, still, I think employers should be taking reasonable steps to notify their their employees of a potential exposure uh, without specifically identifying who the employee is. Uh, I think that employers can do this by simply saying, you know, through a through a communication that there has been an employee that has been diagnosed, that other than those specific individuals who have been um, spoken to individually, which I think I mentioned earlier, um, those people who are within the six feet um, diameter within a period of 10 minutes or more, those people need to be notified that they had a, a, an exposure. Otherwise, I would say that, you know, we believe generally the risk for exposure is low. However, you know, monitor for symptoms, um, follow the guidance that's out there under the CDC and provide that additional information. I think that the best way to handle these situations involves lots of communication from the employer to the employees and that you're more likely to have um, situations like Tiffany described where you have um, OSHA complaints, which certainly have been um, increased, uh, but OSHA complaints and other concerns leading to potential hysteria in your workplace if you remain silent. And um, there are rumors going around and fears that are not being addressed by the employer. That's when you get into a really tricky situation. So communicate early, communicate often, um, communicate with what your recommendations are, communicate to your employees what steps you're taking in order to make sure that their health and safety are at the forefront. So 
you know, after a, a confirmed exposure in your workplace, you know, contact your cleaning department, contact whoever it is that handles your sanitation, make sure that they're coming in and doing a deep cleaning um, that night, you know, make sure that they're doing it all day long in common areas and areas that are frequently touched. And then tell your employees that you're doing it. Really, it's not going to have any kind of comforting impact on your workforce if they have no idea that these are the steps you're taking. Hugh Murray and Tiffany Hubbard, what are your thoughts on how companies should handle alerting coworkers of infections and the issue of conducting contact tracing? Sure, um, I think I think you know everything Brooke said was was right on. Um, it's very important that employees know before a COVID nineteen uh, diagnosis is made by one one of their coworkers that the company is doing everything they can to keep them safe, keep them protected, et cetera. As I said earlier, um, the assumption should be that you have employees in the workplace who are asymptomatic carriers and you're acting accordingly. Um, Given how infectious this is, I suspect that um, it will be the rare workplace uh, before we're done with this that has had no, none of its employees be COVID-19 positive. And so, what you want to do is be in a position where the employees trust you. They think you're doing the right thing. Um, and it's not seen as a watershed event that is a big surprise to people. Um, and in terms of telling folks, I mean, the contact tracing you mentioned, Dan, I mean, the real contact tracing that the CDC and public, local and state public health officials are doing um, is not something most employers should be involved in. The CDC, I looked up this morning, says contact tracing is a specialized skill to be done effectively. It requires people with training, supervision, and access to social and medical support for patients and contacts. So that's not what most employers are doing. What uh, they're doing is sort of um, exactly what Brooke said, touch base with the person who reports that they've tested positive, see if that person um, has had close contact with other employees and um, work from there. But uh, don't take on the role of public health officials, but do be in a position where you can credibly say to your employees, now that somebody has tested positive, um, we're going to do the following steps in addition to all the steps that we have been doing, and we were ready for this. Brooke Ehrlich is a partner at Florida law firm Weiss, Sirota, Helfman, Cole, and Bierman, and Hugh Murray and Tiffany Hubbard are employment law attorneys with McCarter and English in Hartford, Connecticut. Thanks to all for your time today on The Prevention Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Prevention Podcast airs every other Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. Available wherever you get your podcasts. You can sign up for our newsletter at livesafemobile.com and follow us on Twitter at LiveSafe.